From the University of Alberta Alumni Association, it's What the Job. I'm Matt Ray. So there's these really fascinating sort of connection points across different marginalized communities that are really great fodder to have thoughtful and tailored conversations about what somebody needs in their career because of that shared experience of being from these different identity groups. On this special episode of What the Job, I speak with BIPOC career activator and diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant, Gwena Kadima. Through her consulting business, Gwena works with BIPOC students and professionals to help them reach their career potential, and with diverse organizations to address systemic workplace barriers. We chat about her unexpected career journey, how the pandemic played a role in starting her own business, and how organizations can make DEI meaningful and impactful. What the Job is made possible with the support of our affinity partner, TD Insurance. Did you know that through the TD Insurance Mellish Monarchs program, University of Alberta alumni are entitled to preferred rates on car, home, condo, and renter's insurance? Save even more by bundling your car and home insurance. To learn more about how you can save, please visit tdinsurance.com slash ualbertaalumni. So what's your name and what's your job? So my name is Gwena Kadima. My pronouns are she and her. And my job is that I run my own business as both a BIPOC, so Black, Indigenous, and People of Color career activator, and as a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. And so you're an entrepreneur and you're running your own business. I'm really curious what your day-to-day is like, because you're also a consultant, right? So there's a lot of things going on there. Yeah, absolutely. So I tend to block it into when I'm on client delivery versus my downtime. And so when it comes to client delivery, it's one of those things where it totally supersedes. I tend to work on in a project-based style. So there'll always be some sort of recurring touch points with the client in addition to whatever is required for the piece of work. A lot of my work tends to involve engaging with stakeholders to understand, okay, what is the employee experience? What are we looking at in terms of diverse employee strategy and workplace design? So it usually ends up being a combination of interviewing or hosting sessions with employees directly from the client organization, putting together deliverables and preparing for whatever the next phase of the project is, keeping stakeholders to the project informed and engaged and connecting with them to make sure that we're all on the same page for how it's going. And of course, to the entrepreneurial side, always trying to work on what's next and build out the next piece. So a little bit of my time every week is always dedicated to things like this or things like building out my brand looking at new prospects, opportunities like that. There's a, a lot of plates in the air to try to you know, keep them <laughs> all spinning. How do you manage that? So I would say I got a lot of really good training in the work that I did prior to starting my business. So I worked in large global organization management consulting, which very much is not your regular nine to five. Um, so I think I got some good practice in recognizing, hey, if it has to get done, it has to get done. And all of the time management that comes with that as well. So it is a challenge, I will say. There's certainly periods where it feels like a bit too much. <laughs> Did you think, you know, I'm always, I always ask this to entrepreneurs when they kind of break out on their own and they get into it. Did, did you anticipate a lot of the, the uh, things that you'd have to do or the different tasks and the different uh, skills you'd need? Or were there a lot of surprises? I would say there was 
a lot of good surprises mm -hmm. because the way that I like to describe it. So the firm I was working in before, they kind of the way that they structured your progression, there were five levels. So you started as an analyst, you worked your way up to consultant, to manager, senior manager, and then managing director. So when I left my corporate job, I was at the sort of senior consultant getting into manager level. And so everything related to that part of your career is very much around client delivery. So that part I know in and out, like I know how to run a project, I know how to manage the day-to-day -day delivery for our clients. But the part that I would say is a lot of the new learning for me is more of those senior leadership skill sets, the things that traditionally we would find the senior managers or the managing directors at my former employer responsible for. So thinking about branding, building out a business, managing teams, client conflict, and understanding how to sort of work with those difficult situations and come to resolutions and negotiations. Those are the skill sets that have been really exciting for me to build because I am at a stage in my career, if we look numbers wise, where that wouldn't have been coming for at least a little while longer. So it's pretty great to actually have experience in some of those senior leader capabilities at this stage in my career. And what was the experience like to actually break off on your own and start your own thing? Yeah, it was a, a work in progress. It took me a bit of time. So I find it's funny throughout all the different stages in my career. I tend to have this moment where I say, oh, I'm never going to do that. That's not going to be what I am doing. Catch me in a couple of years. And that's exactly where I end up. So fundamentally, first off, I never thought I would be a management consultant. Back when I was doing my BCom at the U of A, it was something that just did not click for me. Thought I would take a completely different route. Next, I said I would never be doing work full time in diversity and inclusion, which near the end of my stint at my former employer was basically my full time job. And then third, I said I would never end up starting my own business, happy to just run as an employee and make it to the top of that corporate ladder. But here we are. So it really ended up being a slow progression. How I ended up starting my company was really recognizing in the middle of the pandemic that I needed a counterbalance. Because for me, where I was working, I was in client delivery, so big time commitment there. I was also quite involved in what the firm calls their plus ones or their extracurriculars. So I was the founder of the Black Employee Resource Group at this organization, the Canadian wing of the ERG. I was involved in basically every inclusion and diversity project available under the sun. And considering all of the things that were happening for Black and other marginalized communities during the pandemic, I had a lot of visibility and I had a lot of FaceTime and there were a lot of expectations for me from my work, from my employer. And so recognizing all of that, I had simultaneously moved. I currently live in Toronto. I moved back to Edmonton, my hometown. I was spending all of my time just chilling with my dad and really realized, hey, there are so many asks of me in my day job and there's so many amazing things that I can do there. But the rest of my life was really not having a lot to pull me in any other direction. So I describe it as a counterbalance because I recognized, hey, I just want to have more dimensions to the way that I do my work. I want to branch out from just having it be aligned to this one organization and build a foundation for myself outside of just what that employer can offer me. So what started as a fun little side hustle, I started to work with some post-secondaries, including the U of A, to offer really intersectional and culturally relevant career services and workshops and coaching for their students turned into a pretty big side hustle and then inevitably gave me the question of, okay, I know that I don't have the time and the day to balance both this and my day job. 
I have to make some decisions and decided to make the move to really invest in building my own thing. It must have been uh, quite a moment where you thought, okay, I can I can make this my job. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. It was a bit of <laughs> really great interactions with clients who really made it clear that they wanted to work with me in a greater capacity than what my side hustle was. So I have some lovely people in my corner and some lovely clients who truly ask the question of, Bueno, what would it take to get you to quit your day job? Are you planning on taking this full time? What does that look like? And so that was completely the moment, Matt, of disbelief and thinking, oh, wow, this is really serious. I should truly consider this and start to plan for it. So honestly, my entire transition out was something that if I count it back, took about a year and a half. But I'm glad that I had that extra time to have the side business, build the foundation, figure it all out while I was still working, because I have so much respect for the folks who just jump straight into entrepreneurship and make it work, because to that point, even more moving plates than we talked about earlier. Well, and I think the whole thing sounds terrifying to just, uh, you know, start, start out on your own. So I have tons of respect for anyone who does it, no matter, no matter the timeline. Um, something else I'm just curious about, going back to your, your current job. Um, what are the sorts of things that clients reach out to you for? What are the sort of things that you, you're helping them with? Yeah. So again, there's sort of the two sides to my business. So BIPOC Career Activator, really on that side, it's partnering predominantly with post-secondaries and nonprofits to ensure that they are providing tailored supports to their BIPOC students. So having those conversations that recognize many other BIPOC students might be international students, they might be immigrants, they might be children of immigrants, understanding what it means to work in culturally in corporate Canada, some of those fundamentals around career planning and really what to expect when you begin in the workplace. There's a lot of power in being able to have conversations that are tailored to your community and one of my favorite things that happens when I end up host, hosting these events is, say, for example, I'm doing a two-hour workshop for Black students. They all come into the room together. Everybody starts to slowly trickle into the room. And right before we start, I'm hearing all this chatter of, I didn't realize there's so many Black students. I haven't met you before. Who are you? I thought I was the only Black kid at the school. And so moments like that that aren't only the career preparedness, but also building those professional communities, even at those earlier stages, are a big part of what the services tend to look like on that side. But I'll pause in case you have any questions before we move on to the other side. <laughs> no, let's get to the other side and then and then I'll follow up after that. It is really interesting though, and, and such a cool yeah. story. Thank you. Yeah, and so on the other side, my work that I do is a DEI consultant. I have run a lot of different types of work in the DEI space, and we can kind of break that down. But as this field continues to grow, not just, of course, as a result of the events of 2020, but was really picking up momentum prior to that, I tend to focus on what are considered a bit more of the later stages of this work. So if you think about an organization coming from, we have absolutely no infrastructure or no plan in place when it comes to DEI there tends to be a traditional trajectory with it. And the areas that always come first are, of course, strategy. And then in addition, there tends to be some sort of awareness, training, or communications component to it. Think your classic unconscious bias training or inclusive leadership, things like that. I spent quite a bit of my career working in those spaces, but recognize the parts that really light me up and the parts that 
blend in the most expertise from my prior work and where I am now are thinking about that latter stage in the sort of DEI maturity journey around thinking around employee experience and setting up program and process infrastructure. So what a lot of this really looks like is essentially partner with organizations to focus on creating more inclusive employee programs. Say, hey, we want to bring in more black talent through our recruiting pipeline. What can we build around that? What are the processes we can look at there? Or maybe it's a matter of, we want to start to build a network of employee resource groups, spaces for different marginalized communities across the organization to connect and really help to ensure the retention and advancement of their communities. How do we build that out? How do we make that more effective? Or finally looking at other areas of, okay, we know that we have a baseline process when it comes to say annual performance reviews, but we're seeing that there's less progression of marginalized communities. How do we review that process? How do we look at it in a way to understand where are potential barriers, where are potential areas of bias, and break that down and rebuild those processes with the marginalized employees' experience in mind? It's really analytical. That's it's interesting to me about how it's you know and fits right in with with business models. I mean, uh, DEI has, as you noted, um, <clears throat> grown a lot over the over the past. I think when I first started my career in communications, which was you know like ten years ago. We did not have any sort of DEI framework or strategy in place, but now <clears throat> pretty much every post-secondary I know of has one. So it's really grown. What, what, why do you think that is? Why now? Yeah, so I would say that a big part of it is, I'd call it a couple of different stages. So first off, really this recognition of the role of people functions within an organization, because not only is it the emergence of this specific DEI function, but also closely related to it is your HR, talent, people, whatever you want to call it, function as well. And so there's a lot of great sort of momentum in recognizing that HR is not just an administrative or a transactional part of your business. They're not the people that only show up when the union is creating noise. They're not the people that only show up when you have to do payroll. They're not the people that only show up when, okay, you have to figure out compensation, all the components related to that. No, your HR function are strategic advisors to your organization because fundamentally businesses are starting to recognize the value in creating a memorable employee experience and making sure that you have robust HR processes. And so directly related to that and as an extension of it is recognizing that because of the systems we operate in, if you look at your baseline cohort of employees, they're having different experiences based on their identities and you have different marginalized groups. So not only the momentum of the HR function, but also DEI coming as a relation to it. But I'd say the other component that really has shifted how folks think about DEI is, of course, again, the pandemic. And the collective, I'd say, awareness and also empathy that was created in that time for so many different historically and now newly marginalized communities. And so I see it completely like employee resource groups are an area I tend to focus on and emphasize. And just seeing the number of Black ERGs, Black collectives of employees who said, we want to make sure that spaces are better for us and barriers are breaking down, erupted after the murder of George Floyd and the sort of consequential snowballing of awareness of so many terrible things that happened to black individuals and black communities. 
So absolutely, I know it was the most terrible thing. We saw Stop Asian Hate. We saw everything around the now new awareness of what happened with residential schools and the uncovering of all the graves and thinking about even just events that were happening around the globe. Because of so many different communities having frankly such awful things happen, but then there being space to have that dialogue within our communities and socially, that also really created a lot more momentum for, I'd say, a next level in terms of understanding DEI and the importance of it and how much it truly matters when it comes to especially corporate spaces. Yeah, it's almost like uh, <clears throat> the window has shifted of what what is acceptable to talk about, because obviously these things, you know, talk about George Floyd, residential schools, um, those atrocities like that have happened, you know, in, in North America for as long as there's been colonization. And um, it just hasn't been something that's been discussed mainstream um, really yeah. until now and still not fully. And, you know, I'd put Me Too into that category as well. Um, mm -hmm. And I wonder how how much further it has to shift still, right? Yeah, absolutely. And like you bring up a great point too, even just thinking about sort of the shifting role for women and caretakers and how that was changed by our transition to work from home. There were so many elements when you think across all those different categories of marginalized communities that folks really started to wake up to. And to your point, yeah, there is still a need for that continued awareness, still a need for that continued action. I think we've got the baseline shock value in a sense where folks recognize, oh, we do need to think about it. But to your point, there's so much nuance in each of these experiences of these marginalized groups that still needs to be uncovered and become more sort of common knowledge and awareness for every individual, whether they identify with the community or hope to be an ally to those groups as well. I just want to go back to, you were talking about talking to um, uh, BIPOC groups or even group, just group of black students. And, you know, you mentioned intersectionality before, and it just got me thinking about how, you know, we use BIPOC as an acronym uh, for one thing, but it, it really constitutes a whole bunch of uh, different people with different backgrounds and different um, experiences. Um, how do you talk to a group like that and help like that group? Like, is it more about reaching out to the individual or are there, are there still shared experience, shared challenges in the workplace or entering the workplace? Yeah, absolutely. So I am glad you called this out because by no means are, we'll take one level BIPOC communities, we'll break that down further with black communities as an example, a single monolithic experience. However, to that point, there are some sort of fundamental similarities due to these big structural barriers, such as racism, where regardless of how you identify within racialized communities, more often than not, there is a baseline of shared experience. So in terms of having these conversations, there, it's a lot of taking really sort of the fundamentals of different points of career planning and career development and making sure that they're shared in a way that really resonates. And so for me, it is, I'm happy to do sessions across BIPOC communities, but truly I do love if we can get as nuanced as possible. That does of course give it a bit more ease to it because there's less content to cover. But in a way, when we think about not just sort of from a racial identity perspective, there's a lot of cultural similarities across wide swaths of the globe. Like I tend to refer back to Hofstede's model cultural dimensions. And so it's this really cool tool. You can actually look it up and essentially you can type in vast majority of countries. They don't have all of them, 
but you can type in any country and this tool will show how these countries score across five or six dimensions related to big sort of cultural um, characteristics. So a common example is thinking about whether it's a individualistic or collectivist society. This idea of do we highlight and emphasize the achievements of one and really prioritize competition and making it ahead as an individual, or do we prioritize more the collective growth of the group and bringing those along with you and prioritizing community and a lot more of those harmonious components. This tool breaks down countries around the globe in terms of how they score on the spectrum from hyper-individualist to hyper-collectivist. And so it's been really interesting to see across that dimension and many others how there are some commonalities. Back to that point around collectivism, there are a lot of BIPOC communities that are more collectivist in nature. This idea of even just something as simple as multi-generational households being more common, or this idea of your definition of who's a cousin versus who is an auntie and who is considered a familial tie can, tends to be much more expanded. Like for me being Congolese, I have more aunties than I probably even know. Am I blood related? No, but they're considered aunties and there's this familial bond with members of our community. And so concepts like that really shape the way that we think about the workplace, think about sort of how much we speak about our own achievements versus the achievement of a group, which if we use that as an example, can really impact you as you're doing job interviews or as you're trying to position yourself for a promotion. So there's these really fascinating sort of connection points across different marginalized communities that are really great fodder to have thoughtful and tailored conversations about what somebody needs in their career because of that shared experience of being from these different identity groups. So it's not always perfect. You can't exactly fully cut the majority of the global population into a single homogenized group, but I really try to focus on those baseline similarities across these populations and of course, create space for nuance whenever time permits. I wanna go back a bit um to your work experience and, and your journey and how you got to where you're as, specifically because I remember you said in that sort of like series of uh, reverse prophecies, you said you'd never work in DEI is what you thought. And yet here you are. So how did that happen? I love how prophetic that makes me sound. Thank you. Um, maybe in a reverse way, but we don't have to unpack that. So really what ended up happening was for me, if we kind of take the full step. So grew up in Edmonton, um, ended up recognizing that I wanted to do a business program while I was in high school. And what really made me see that was in all the summer jobs and the volunteer work that I had, I was always fascinated by this concept of how you can bring all of these different unrelated people together towards achieving a common purpose. And I was like, this is amazing. How do you get all of these strangers to care about the same thing and collectively create something bigger than sort of the individual components, right? So that was something that I had recognized that drew me towards doing the strategic management and organization major in the Bachelor of Commerce program. And I knew in that that I really have a fascination towards people and how they work in corporate spaces. Understanding teaming, leadership, group dynamics, really thinking about all of those components, absolutely loved it. What was happening for me simultaneously, though, was a personal reckoning when it comes to my own identity. And so recognizing I'm a black woman who lives in Edmonton, which 
isn't the most diverse place at all times and really is growing and changing as I get older. But at the time, I was really struggling to find my own community and with that, understand my own identity. And so what ended up happening, the most random thing, I had a summer internship in Camden, New Jersey. It's in the U.S. It's a very predominantly black and brown community. And I was working as a summer camp counselor. And for me, that was the first time that I had ever been in a space that was predominantly people who looked like me. And the experiences that came with that and the sense of identity that grew was something that I actually didn't realize until I came back to Edmonton and thought, whoa, okay, now I see the difference. Now I understand the meaning of community and sort of having similar populations and shared identity. Now I understand this concept around diversity and as well inclusion and belonging. And so, when I was starting to process that, I was really looking for how that fit into corporate spaces and ended up, there was a course, it was called Gender Issues in the Workforce, that really started to open my eyes to the fact that, yes, companies are talking about this. So I always knew that I liked the space of diversity and inclusion. It's something that really felt good to me. But to the question of why I say that I didn't expect that I would fully work in it, was that after I had started in the corporate world, I really recognized that there's a lot of emotional labor that comes with this work. And it's something that I like doing it in my plus one extracurricular capacity, but couldn't fathom what it would be like to do this work as my full-time job. And so I think a big part of it was also due to around that time, like I was a couple years into my career, BLM's picking up during the pandemic, it's 2020, and just recognizing that that was a really difficult time for me and for my peers. And really the expectations for us as Black employees to really show up, inform strategy, and frankly have a lot of amazing opportunities to sort of steer the boat. But the recognition that we were expected to do that at a time where many of us were feeling so hurt and so devastated for ourselves and for our communities there was a lot that that period of time took out of me and frankly made me worried about doing this work. So you're probably wondering then how we got to where we are. Um, a big part of it was rest and also recognizing that there's a lot of different ways to do this work. And a big part of why that work felt so difficult at the time was around the idea of recognizing that there wasn't the same infrastructure set up to help us succeed, recognizing the nuances of how this isn't just a regular extracurricular, this isn't the same as having a social committee at work, this really has to do with something that's very deeply personal to many of the folks that are working in this space. So really being able to understand that there is a need for infrastructure and organizational supports, and then getting a sense from different parts of my communities of, oh, this work can be done in a way that protects our peace, allows us to be able to rest and still be able to show up in the way that we want, but can have so much change because we're doing it from a corporate perspective and because there's so many resources available and there's just so much strength within the economy if we're doing it from more of the professional side, was something that after a lot of rest really helped motivate me to recognize, one, this is the skill set, and two, this is work that can be done in a lot more sustainable of a way, in a way that won't have people end up the way that I did in 2020, exhausted, burnt out, and wanting to do the work, but really not feeling like there was 
the full support and the full resources available to be able to do so in the most effective way. I'm curious also, because I'm a little conscious of time, but like, where are we headed? Like, what is, what do you think the uh, directions that, I mean, we is such a broad term because it's like all businesses everywhere, all institutions everywhere. I mean, but um, what, what are some things that I guess, uh, as we see more and more companies and businesses and institutions embrace DEI strategies, for example, um, and emphasizing diversity in their hiring, what are some steps that still need to happen or where are some, some things that we still need to work on? Yeah, absolutely. So a big part of it is really just a lot of organizations, frankly, need to start. So I want to call that out. Um, I'm still sometimes caught off guard when companies are creating their first DEI strategy or are just really starting to build on the concept. But really in terms of what the change needs to be is that recognizing that we need to get past the work that is predominantly to the benefit of allies. We need to really be able to, like I was talking about earlier, there's sort of these stages of momentum. And so a lot of companies I find tend to be stuck in terms of, okay, we got the strategy, we did our training, now what? So taking that to the next level so that, yes, your overall culture shifts, but also the marginalized communities who are equity seeking and experience these barriers actually have a tangible difference in what their day-to-day is at work and have the space to be able to succeed and reach sort of the creme de la creme idea that senior leadership is representative of all voices in all communities is really recognizing that it can't just be the one-offs. It can't just be the building of sort of the nice plan and hoping it goes through, but it is truly a shift in terms of leadership, direction, approach to culture, and making sure that processes have really been evaluated and broken down in a way to ensure that those biases that felt intuitive for decades, if not centuries, are actually being given a second look to recognize that fundamentally this is not working for everyone. And the other component too, which really needs to change is the investment in the space. And I know it's tricky as we come towards a potential or we're in the middle, depending on who you ask, recession. And recognizing, unfortunately, the first departments that tend to get cut are the ones that are seen as support or people-focused departments. But really recognizing that if you want to have meaningful work done in this space, and if you are fundamentally going to call it a business priority, which a lot of organizations I see are shifting to, which is amazing, you have to be able to dedicate the same level of resourcing and investment to this as you would to your sales team, to your product team, to your operations team, to really be able to have that meaningful change, especially recognizing that, yes, it's an overall number of hours committed and the idea of overtime and understaffed teams is a problem regardless of department, but there's also the added nuance of emotional labor and this work being very personal for a lot of people that needs to be considered to avoid that heightened possibility. I think, you know, it's one thing I did want to ask about from the start, and you already hit it on, is like, how do you avoid making um, your DEI strategy just a, a check mark for a box, right? Like, or, or just boilerplate for your job postings that you put on the bottom. Uh, and it does seem like there, there definitely needs to be buy-in from the top, that it's something that you actually want to do, and to recognize the the benefits that, that come out of it, and not just for, you know, as you said, allies, right? So. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I would say buy-in for sure. The other component I would add into is being data-driven. 
because a lot of folks tend to think that it's very sort of high in the sky or gut driven. But no, it's this is one of the areas that gets me most excited is really thinking about all of the different ways that you can quantify, measure and track inclusion and diverse representation and equity and belonging within an organization. So really making sure that you have that infrastructure. And again, like any other strategic priority, you're actually creating your metrics, you're creating your plans, and you're tracking those KPIs or key performance indicators, because this is a domain that you can absolutely do that in and not just say, oh, it looks like we don't have a lot of women in the room. We should probably fix that. There's a lot that you can uncover as to, yes, for sure, solidifying those numbers, but also being able to get to the why for whatever reason that's happening. Okay, so it's time for the lightning round. Uh, this is just a series of questions that I ask every single guest, and it is brought to you by our affinity partner, TD Insurance. The first question is, have you ever been fired from a job? <laughs> uh, ooh, have I ever been fired? I was gently encouraged to leave my first restaurant job. <laughs> <laughs> we'll call it that. <laughs> when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be an architect. If you go to my parents' house, there is still a one-eighth scale cutout of my bedroom to include all of the different, like the swing on the door, how far that builds into the room, the height of the windows, all of the different, like where the outlets are, all of those little granular things so that I could use that to rearrange my furniture in my bedroom on a yearly basis. So the idea of like, breaking down spaces. I now do it in PowerPoint, which is the corniest thing in the world. I love the concept of sort of building um, and what that looks like. And my favorite game as a kid was Sims. And truly, I never even actually played with the characters. I just built the houses and then moved on to the next one. Why, so. <laughs> aren't, why aren't you an architect right now? Why aren't you an architect? What? Oh my goodness. Why am I not an architect? Um, <laughs> so I talk about this a lot on the BIPOC Career Activator side, is that there's this classic idea of the immigrant parent trifecta of good jobs, doctor, lawyer, engineer. The fourth component that sometimes makes it in is accountant slash business person. So there was a lot of family encouragement to be able to transition to that way. But truly, I think it's for the best because if you've seen me play Jenga, I'm really not the person that should be responsible for creating any sort of structure <laughs> in a meaningful way outside of the Sims of Power. <laughs> I think that's the uh, entrance exam for architect school is a big Jenga off. Um, what's, some, what's something that people, uh, what's something you wish people understood about your job or something that people might misunderstand about your job? One of the things that I think could really benefit for more folks to recognize is how critical the role of allies is in this work. Because a lot of people you'll see, like if you look at the chief diversity officers or the chief inclusion officers of a lot of companies, it tends to be black women or people of color or marginalized communities. But fundamentally, we're in the situation because certain groups have more power and privilege than others. And it is so impactful and so necessary for the folks who currently hold that power and privilege, the allies to support and really drive this work forward, of course, informed by the needs of those marginalized communities. What advice do you have for someone who feels like they are in a career rut, like they're stuck? Shake up your network. Shake up the folks that are around you, giving you that representation of what a good career looks like and what the options available to you are. When I was thinking of transitioning from side hustle to full-time as an entrepreneur, 
what really made that jump feel so much more possible was recognizing I need to meet some more entrepreneurs. And as I did, really seeing, hey, this is possible. This is viable. So really, some of the people you surround yourself with, right? If something feels impossible, I suspect there's already somebody doing it. What is your favorite thing about your job? Being able to consistently interact with the people who prioritize creating more inclusive spaces. Like I mentioned, a lot of my work is with employee resource group leads and being able to have conversations with them and recognize not only are they rocking it in their day job, but that deep sense of purpose to create better spaces for everybody. They tend to be the most rad people and I am so glad I get to spend so much of my time with them. And last, if you could go back in time and talk to yourself just after you graduated, what would you say? Find the place that feels like home. This might not be it, but you'll know when you find it. Well, it's been fantastic talking to you. I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience and your advice and your knowledge. Oh, it was so great to be here. Thank you so much, Matt. Thanks for listening to this episode of What the Job, and a special thanks to our guest, Gwena Kadima, for talking to us about her career journey. And as always, a reminder that the best place for alumni to connect with other alumni about jobs, mentorship, or career opportunities is the online platform Switchboard. It's free, and you can try it out today at uab.ca slash sport. It's a great tool no matter where you are in your career journey. That's all for this episode. For What the Job, I'm Matt Ray. See you next time.